all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 192 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the search engine episode of the SLS Cast. Because it turns out that if you're looking for a specific search engine where you can search for people or businesses, there happens to be a search engine dedicated just to that, so you don't have to try and Google them. You could instead do 192.com. I don't know why that's a thing, more or even why it's called 192, but that's a search engine that you can use. And with that little bit of search engine knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. And Matt, do you hear the trumpets in the background? <laughs> The Olympics are upon us. The sport where in 1900 Paris Summer Olympic Games, there was live pigeon shooting. Did you know that? Live pigeon shooting. (laughs) Uh, That's awesome. Uh, You know what? I did not know that. Yeah, apparently in 1900, that's the only year that the live pigeon shooting actually occurred. It was where the competitors were tasked with killing as many live pigeons as possible, and it made it to the official games. Unfortunately, 300 birds were killed during that year's summer <laughs> summer Olympics. And if only it wasn't 100 and... You said it was the 1900 games? The 1900 games. Oh, man. See, if it wasn't 116 years ago, I'd like to try and track down the gold medal winner. <laughs> And hear the stories of slaughtering pigeons. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's pretty cool. So how's your week been, sir? My week has been going pretty well. I was consumed like hundreds of other Americans and people all over the world this past weekend watching the swimmers swim and the cyclists cycling there in, where are they at, Puerto Rico? I, I forget. <laughs> Rio. Rio? What have you been up to? Lifeguarding, lifeguarding the swim team at the Olympics. Yes, yes, I, uh, I, I, they, they took one look at me and said that I could be used as a mass flotation device, and I would be able to save everybody. They could just latch onto me and, you know, fat floats. Well, the good so. thing with you is that, like any great flotation device, you will have pockets where one could put their beer when they are not drinking it. True. Unfortunately, the pocket would be my hand, which would then go, and you'd lose the beer. I would have to drink your beer then. But I figure it's a, it's a good trade. Apparently, I'm saving your life as a flotation device. I work on beer. It's a good deal. <laughs> no, I have not really been doing all that much this week, just gearing up for school. Got the semester starting in a couple more weeks. And... Uh, let's see here. I, I have uh, achieved what is one of the pinnacles of collegiate life. Uh, I have actually gotten an independent study. 
What is where... this independent study? Is it, is it like an initiation into some like skull and crossbones organization? Basically, it's where you will you can get credit in whatever desired field that you're getting the study in, and it counts <clears throat> as actual hours of credit, generally three. And in my case, I'm doing it for history. And you literally come up with the class. You you get up. You have to get a professor. This is the hard part: is you have to get a professor that's willing to do this because the professor neither gets um, compensated nor do they get credit. They just have. They basically it's taking on like a charity case. And so you get with the professor if the professor is willing to do it, and then you literally come up with a class and you end up doing. Uh, the research and you look into all of everything and then you end up presenting um, in this particular case it'll be a 25 to 35 page research paper wow on whatever the topic is so but on the flip side of that you don't have a class that you go to you don't have like tests that you have to take you every you're literally putting everything together yourself and it's kind of an all-or-nothing kind of thing so that's awesome. That's cool, man. Yeah. So we're I, I so I'm working on that. I've got a I'll I'll let you know what the topic ends up being. I've got a couple of early America topics that we're dealing with right now. How about so. early 1900s French pigeon shooting? Pigeon shooting. <laughs> French pigeon shooting. If the Americans competed in it, I might have a shot, but we'll see. Very cool. Did you have? Uh, I'm I'm curious to know about your news of the weird. I do oh, hope it is yes. pigeon-related or shooting something. It's not. Do you want to do the news of the weird first, or do you want to do the mail first? Because we've got an email to read as well. Oh, yeah. How about the mail? All right. Well, let's uh, go tickle the old scrotum sack. Please don't leave anything up to the I'm imagination. Just, I'm just... I, we started it last week. I was listening to this week's show again while I was at work tonight because I was like, holy crap, I hadn't listened to it yet. And we somehow got on this really weird tangent where now we're calling this a mail sack or something. And uh, yeah, anyway, here we go. You too can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. Uh, we have no Twitter followers to mention, but uh, of course, if you would like to follow us on Twitter, you can do that at uh, the SLS cast. We have our lovely Diana. She has sent us an email, uh, and the title of the email is Hunt for the Wilder People. She says, Hi guys, listen to the Born Movies reviews on the way to seeing my latest indie movie, and you guys painted a great recap of the whole franchise. Got me interested in Jason Bourne again. But let me tell you about this gem of a movie from New Zealand I just saw called Hunt for the Wilder People, a funny and sad yet touching adventure in some pristine country typical of New Zealand. It's like nothing else you've ever seen. Treat yourself to this unique movie from another world. Stop and breathe in deep, blow out the bad. That's her little signature line. I like that. It's very positive. So thank you, Diana, for sending that out. Um, are you familiar with this one, Tim? I have not heard of this at all. Yes, I have. In fact, I was going to recommend us watch this movie uh, some weeks ago, but I don't think it's showing, or it, it didn't come out near you. Uh, but it's directed by, I'm going to butcher his name, but Taika Watiti, I think. He directed What We Do in the Shadows, the vampire werewolf movie. Wow, okay. Well, I would be down for that. I love that movie, and I'm 
I am so excited about the sequel. And I, I mean, it's great. And I know I'm about to kind of we're about probably going to be shitting on Rotten Tomatoes here in a little bit. But it has a 99% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Sam Neill is in it, as well as Rice Darby from uh, Fly the Concords and What We Do in the Shadows. So it's supposed to be a great movie. Well, there you go, Diana. Thank you so much. I guess it, it will be forthcoming uh, sooner rather than later. So yay. Outstanding. And uh, if you, of course, want to email us again the show at slscast.com and so i guess now we will do some news of the weird this comes to us from cruiserschoice.com by way of andy hodges <clears throat> leroy blast black has different obituaries from wife and girlfriend <laughs> ah leroy blast black Okay, this is kind of messed up here. I'm going to try and fix some of the grammar here. Uh, lived a double life. He had a wife and a girlfriend. And it was revealed in different obituaries in the newspaper. So at first glance, it appeared to be a mistake, but the listings were accurate. So, <clears throat> Black died at home. Um, let's see here. Last Tuesday, so this is very recent. The article is dated uh, yesterday, August 7th. It says that he died Tuesday um, of lung cancer at the age of 55. And depending which one you were reading, Leroy was survived by his, quote, loving wife Beretta Harrison, end quote, uh, Black, or his longtime girlfriend, Princess Hall. And so... It's really kind of interesting because the first obituary says, um, the first obituary is the one that his wife did, but the second one has his long tome girlfriend, Princess Hall. Now, I guess they didn't, uh, I guess they just print as is because it's literally written out as long tome. And what's so amazing about this is that, let me read you the first one. So, <clears throat> this is Black, Leroy Bill. 55 of Egg Harbor Township died August 2nd, 2016, at home, surrounded by his family. <clears throat> he is survived by his loving wife, Beretta Harrison Black, and his son, Jazz Black. He was also a father to Malcolm and Josiah Harrison Fitzpatrick. And, of course, funeral services, da 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 Okay. Now, that sounds very simple, succinct, you know, respectful, very nice. But then we get the girlfriend's obituary, literally printed right underneath. Uh, Black, Leroy, Blast. 55 of Egg Harbor Township passed away at home on August 2nd, 2016 from cancer of the lungs due to fiberglass explosion. He is survived by his son, Jazz Black, siblings Donald, Faye Cherry, Janet Vilma, Laura, I'm sorry, Lorna Clover, Audrey Marcia, Sandra Rosemarie, and a host of other family, friends, and neighbors, and his long-tome girlfriend, Princess Hall. He is predeceased by his parents. Bill was employed as a fiberglass technician at South Shore Contractors in Ocean City Water Park. Funeral services. Now, what I think is so amazing about this one is that everybody who is survived by him has a nickname. 
So he was Blast. There was Cherry, Vilma, Clover, Marsha, and Rosemary. And then Princess. Princess Hall. Um, I don't know that I would want to be remembered like that. What do you, would, I mean, Tim, would you want to be remembered in such a manner as everybody must have really weird bordering on just flat out bad nicknames posted in your obituary? Nobody would want the name Vilma if it was given to them at birth. But why would you want a nickname, Vilma or Clover? Mainly Vilma. That sounds like <laughs> a French pigeon shooter from 1900s French Olympics. What do you think the wife thought? <laughs> That's got to be uh what the fuck? Well, I mean, how would your you wife know. would react? What would she do? Would she, like, dig you up and then... You know, if this wasn't going to happen, they're, I'm surely they're going to run into each other at the funeral. But also, if she knows... If the sister, if the girlfriend knew the family, does that mean, like, she's met the family? And wouldn't this all be on the family that knew about her? I have no idea. See, because I... I don't, I mean, there's just, it sounds like maybe his brothers and sisters knew about it, but didn't care. So maybe they didn't like his wife very much. <laughs> it's going to be one interesting funeral. I would think, though, that if Jen, uh, if if I were stupid enough to do something like this, and then ultimately, I mean, I'm dead. I guess it doesn't matter in this particular instance. But it were found out, I would imagine Jen would wait until the funeral started and literally just walk up and kick the casket over and then just leave. (laughs) (laughs) Douse it with lighter fluid, light it on fire. (laughs) Exactly. So, anyway. So that was the news of the weird. (laughs) And weird it was. Yes. All right, so it is now time for real news. Are you ready for some real news? Let's real news it up. (laughs) Here we go, folks. It's... The news! Okay. I have two pieces of news this week. Again. But this time I'll be able to get to both of them, I promise. Uh... First up from businessinsider.com by way of Nathan McAlone. Netflix has more subscribers than its biggest cable competitors combined, but that might be a bad thing. Yes, you you just heard how it might be a bad thing, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Netflix may have missed on its subscriber growth estimates for the U.S. last quarter in a big way, but it still has more customers than the top U.S. cable companies. Here is how Netflix compares to its top cable, co- cable competitors in video. Netflix has 47.1 million subscribers as of uh, Q2 of this year. Comcast... Its closest rival in subscriber numbers has 22.4 million as of uh, quarter two. And finally, Charter at about 17 million in May. So if you take the 22 plus 17, that's 39. So you're looking at 39.4 million between Comcast and Charter and 47.1 million for Netflix. Yeah. 
So Netflix has more subscribers than Comcast and Charter combined, and it's almost as big as the entire cable video industry. Uh, according to Business Insider Intelligence, the top nine U.S. cable companies had 49.1 million subscribers total, adding just over 50,000 subscribers in Q1 2016. Netflix is uh, sitting just below that level. Uh, but that news might sound like a good thing for Netflix, but it actually could be a source of worry for investors who are concerned about Netflix's slowing subscriber growth. Netflix has blamed the slowdown on accidental cancellations from the new chip-enabled credit cards and on media reports. But the big fear among investors is that the slowdown is actually because Netflix has saturated the market. Uh, Netflix added just 160,000 new subscribers in the U.S. last quarter. So the question is whether... Whether Netflix's appeal can push beyond that of cable, or, where, or whether this is as big as it gets. Uh, that is the article. You're welcome to review that for yourself, though. Uh, again, businessinsider.com by way of Nathan McAlone. What do you think there, Tim? Do you think Netflix has saturated? And uh, if so, are you surprised to hear that it's literally almost as big as cable at this point? Man, I believe it. The number of cord cutters nowadays, even among millennials is insane. A number of my friends don't even have cable. Uh, they just, I, we don't have cable. We just had the internet it, because the internet itself is so damn expensive. And we, really, there's no need for cable if you have online subscriptions to like HBO Go to, you know, if you're into sports, I'm sure, you, you know, you'd have sports subscriptions. So you really don't need it. So no, I'm not, I'm not too surprised by this. Oh, well, and see, the cable companies know this. I, I got a nice little, uh, a friendly letter from AT&T telling me that now I have, uh, I used to have unlimited, but now I have a one terabyte download um, cap per month. Now, I don't, uh, I don't think that that's really an issue for me, but whatever. I, uh, it's the principle of the thing. The thing is, though, is that they said, if you will bundle your cable, with us then we'll give you unlimited data again oh, so wow. yeah uh it's like well that's okay i'll take my chances on the one terabyte i don't care <laughs> i'm not I, I don't need to spend you then you much. hit that limit and you call them and say what the hell's going on well uh sir uh you know you, you hit your limit your one terabyte limit oh that's great i will cancel my service and go with the other guy. And I guarantee you they will not let you do that. And they'll... Oh, they're, they're being very, very careful because when, when I read that this was coming a few months ago, I read that I read they were actually going to put it at 600 gig. Um, but they know just exactly how close Google Fiber is to us um, because they're now in Austin. So they're creeping ever closer to Houston, which is market four. It is literally the fourth largest city in the united states i mean so you don't want to really want to fuck around with that many millions of people so instead of the 600 gig that was touted we, we're getting a terabyte so we're getting two-thirds more internet than we're supposed to against someone who doesn't have potential competition so even now they're being careful about it but it's kind of dumb yeah what do you got for us, sir? All right, I'm going to knock out uh, three smaller pieces of news. A couple mentions here via filmschoolrejects.com. I thought that was, this was too cool not to mention. Uh, written by Rob Hunter, Lionsgate resurrects 80s Vestron horror classics from the dead. 
New limited collector's editions of Chopping Mall, Waxwork, and more heading to Blu-ray. But the article says that this news feels like it's been a long time coming as the specialty Blu-ray release market, one largely focused on genre films, has continued to grow even as home video itself seems stagnant. Labels like Arrow Video, Scream Factory, Vinegar Syndrome, and others have developed dedicated customer bases through releases of old favorites lovingly restored and packed with special features. Horror fans have been clamoring for numerous titles from the 1980s, now owned by Lionsgate, but rights issues prevented the existing boutique labels from assessing the films. Happily, for those of us who love the decade's genre output, that drought appears to be coming to an end. Lionsgate has announced a new series of releases starting late next month, and they said, quote, Lionsgate is exhuming classic horror films with a red carpet rollout this fall for a limited edition Vestron Video Collector Series. Hours of material have been assembled for the Vestron Video Collector Series Blu-ray. Releases start with the six horror cult classics. Taste the fear in the flesh in shocking high definition for the very first time as teenagers meet their untimely demise at the hands of cannibals, killer robots, horror icons, sewer-dwelling monsters, and an army of the undead. End all quotes there. I'm looking forward to it. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of a number of these movies. In fact, I haven't seen a number of these movies. I've seen Chud and, and Waxwork. Uh, but I haven't, I haven't seen Chopping Mall and Blood Diner. But I have friends. I have friends that are into these cult movies. They love them so much because they're just fun. They're not bound by any restrictions. And that's what makes them so unique. So I'm excited that stuff like this is seeing the light of day again. I'm a huge fan of Shout Factory. And when they release horror films, they call themselves Scream Factory. They're coming out with a new uh, new edition of The Thing. And that edition is going to be a two or three Blu-ray discs with alternate versions of the film with an extended cut. They also are throwing in like the TV censored version of it and loads of material. And these movies are being handled with care by people who love movies and cherish movies like this. So I'm, I'm super happy to learn that all this stuff is, again, seeing the light of day. Next up... I think this is pretty cool. I love documentaries like this from IndieWire.com. 24 by 36, a movie about movie posters. Trailer, the artistic side of one sheets gets profiled. This here is written by Zach Scharf. And it says this, quote, I always loved posters just like I love scores and soundtracks. End quote. Nicholas Winding Refn once told IndieWire, quote, It's just something around cinema that is more about your imagination, more about what you're going to be seeing rather than what it is you're actually seeing. I find that very intoxicating, end quote. Unfortunately, the art of the movie poster has become something of a dying breed in the age of blockbusters and studio tentpoles. For every couple ingenious one-sheets, there seems to be about a hundred carbon copies. 
Fortunately, the new documentary, 24 by 36 a movie about movie posters, is here to take a stand against the boring trend that haunt movie posters today. Directed by Kevin Burke and produced by Snowfort Pictures and Post Snow Joe's Productions, 24 by 36 chronicles the rise, fall, and increasing rebirth of the illustrated movie poster. Interviewees include William Stout, James Edmonston, Gary Pulin, and the iconic Roger Castle, the man responsible for the Jaws poster that has since become a staple of movie iconography. And guys, go check out the trailer. It's fascinating. It's everything that you'd expect. Again, these are people that love this part of movie history that is really non-existent nowadays. We did that three squared a few weeks ago, a few episodes ago, about movie posters that rip off original work for the most part. But nowadays, they're, it's not like you're having drawn-out artistic posters that are ripping off other drawn-out artistic posters Nowadays, it's just really shitty posters that are knocking off less shittier versions of that poster. It's kind of interesting, and I'm looking forward to seeing this one. Again, it's 24 by 36, a movie about movie posters. I do love Nicholas Winding Refn's uh, quote here, where whenever you first see a poster, that's your introduction to the film. And in the 1920s and 30s and 40s and 50s, back when... Special effects were, you know, not that great, even for the time for most movies, especially for the uh, B, C, and D movies. They had to create a movie poster that sparks the imagination to get you to want to see that movie, or to get you to see that movie in hopes that in some way it captures what that movie poster captured. So do check out the trailer and let us know what you think. Again, it's 24 by 36, a movie about movie posters. And then I'm going to move on to this piece of news where Matt will have a couple things to say, I'm sure. EntertainmentWeekly.com, or EW.com. The Great Wall director addresses Matt Damon whitewashing controversy. This is an exclusive for Entertainment Weekly. And The Great Wall is the upcoming Chinese film uh, that is about the mysterious Great Wall and the reason why it was built. And apparently, according to this movie, the wall was built to keep out monsters. This is what this article says. On July 28th, acclaimed Chinese filmmaker Zhang Yimou, who directed House of Flying Daggers, released the first photos and trailer of his and his country's most expensive movie ever. Many audiences were surprised to see that The Great Wall was not about the construction of China's 5,500-mile-long 5, wonder of the world, but instead a full-fledged monster movie. But many more were surprised and disappointed that the film, set about 1,000 years ago, starred white American actor Matt Damon. In a lengthy tweet posted one day after the trailer debuted, Fresh Off the Boat star Constance Wu criticized the project for, quote, perpetuating the racist myth that only a white man can save the world, end quote, and wrote, quote, our heroes don't look like Matt Damon, end quote. In a statement provided by exclusively to E. W. U. Zhang addresses the controversy, explaining that Damon's character serves an important plot point and defends the film against charges of racism. And this is his statement right here. In many ways, The Great Wall is the opposite of what is being suggested. For the first time, a film deeply rooted in Chinese culture, with one of the largest Chinese casts ever assembled, is being made at tentpole scale for a world audience. I believe that is a trend that should be embraced 
by our industry. Our film is not about the construction of the Great Wall. Matt Damon is not playing a role that was originally conceived for a Chinese actor. The arrival of his character in our story is an important plot point. There are five major heroes in our story, and he is one of them. The other four are all Chinese. The collective struggle and sacrifice of these heroes are the emotional heart of our film. As the director of over 20 Chinese language films and the Beijing Olympics, I have not and will not cast a film in a way that was untrue to my artistic vision. I hope when everyone sees the film and is armed with the facts, they will agree. End all quotes there. Matt, what do you think about this? Well, I, for one, could not agree with the director more. You know, people need to calm the fuck down. You know, you haven't seen the movie. You don't know what the movie's about. Uh, it's a trailer. And apparently the trailer did a damn good job of promoting interest and and uh, making the movie desirable to see, but also left enough of the story out so that people would sit there and go, oh, I need to go see this. But instead, no, uh, it's Matt Damon. Oh, what the fuck does a white guy have to You know what? Calm down. Wait till the movie comes out, then watch the movie. Oh, so irritated. I'm good for good for the director though. Good on him. People need to shut the fuck up and calm the fuck down. And in that order. <laughs> and in that order. In that order. Now... <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and close out my news with this wonderful thing. Uh, uh, another little op-ed from Reddit user mi-16evil as he pulls more numbers from Box Office Mojo and organizes them so nicely and then has uh, some things to say about it. And this is, of course, uh, you can find it over at reddit.com slash r slash movies. Uh, box Office Week. Suicide Squad demolishes the August opening weekend record by over $40 million, coming in number one with $135 million. Uh, meanwhile, both Jason Bourne and Star Trek Beyond drop over 50%, and Nine Lives flops, opening at number six with $6.5 million. Uh, yeah, so top five movies this weekend, real interesting on the money side. Suicide Squad, of course, 135.1 million, we said, uh, was, was already noted there. So, and, and the worldwide gross right now for Suicide Squad is already 267 million. Uh, Jason Bourne, is uh was number two at 22 million and its worldwide gross thus far is uh 195 million bad moms telling you what the the they have united uh 14 million and it's in its second week just like jason Bourne is in its second week uh 14 million this week it's worldwide gross is 56 and a half million secret life of pets is still doing uh still hanging in there it's in its fifth week it had 11 million uh, 11 and a half million its worldwide gross is uh 502 million and then star trek beyond number five it's in its third week and it made 10 million dollars its worldwide gross at this point is 194 million so jason Bourne is actually doing better than star trek beyond and it's a week ahead or i mean i'm sorry and it's a week behind star trek beyond so yeah uh let's see here the box office stories here much like batman v superman the power of pre-hype for suicide squad couldn't stop the poorly reviewed film from having a massive opening weekend the biggest one in august history in fact opening at number one 
That tops previous August winner, Guardians of the Galaxy, by over $40 million. Uh, internationally, the film opened in less territories than Deadpool, yet still managed to beat Deadpool's worldwide opening, with a weekend haul of $267.1 million, placing Suicide Squad in the top 25 worldwide openings of all time. So while, there, so while there's all this hype and excitement, it's, po- it's impossible not to ignore the big elephant in the room, namely a certain other DC film with a terrible Rotten Tomato score that opened wide this year but didn't do well in the long tail. <clears throat> while BBS's opening weekend haul of $166 million was also record-breaking, the following we- week it dropped almost 70% and showed no signs of life Afterwards, Suicide Squad does have the advantage of having a slightly higher cinema score, B+, versus a B rating for Batman v Superman. But it's not high enough to guarantee huge word of mouth that would give this film legs. There's not too much competition in the film's wake, but Batman v Superman lost its third week to a Melissa McCarthy comedy. So nothing is really promised. Uh, even worse, China still has not put the film on its roster of U.S. releases, likely meaning that the film will never play in the country. Uh, and that film that's being referred to is... Suicide Squad. So Batman v Superman got 95 million from China, and Suicide Squad seems to be missing out on that pretty badly. Um, moving quickly, though, Suicide Squad wasn't the only massive juggernaut to open this week as Nine Lives finally hit theaters. All joking aside, this fairly high-budgeted $30 million kids' film has been the subject of much mocking since its trailer came out and has only continued as the film earned an abysmal 4% on Rotten Tomatoes. Perhaps it was the reviews, or maybe parents didn't take the bait this time, as we do not have another Norm of the North situation. Nine Lives opened at number 6, to 6.5 million that's the worst opening in over a decade for men in black director barry sonnefeld and the worst wide release opening for kevin spacey since 1997's midnight in the garden of good and evil by the way i like that movie it's a good movie uh while nine lives has the same b plus rating as uh, that suicide squad has on cinema score live stands directly in the path of potential mega hit pete's dragon which will likely eat up the few remaining tickets for lives' second week unless the film is a bizarre hit in another country it seems very unlikely that nine lives will ever justify why its direct-to-dvd script had a bigger budget than neighbors uh finally whenever you have a big opening like suicide squad it's always worth seeing what film suffered or oddly benefited in its wake first on the suffering side is jason bourne another pg-13 action film was always going to feel the effects of suicide squad but bourne fell particularly hard hit um dropping 61 percent for a number two spot of 22.7 million bourne has better reviews and a cinema score rating than suicide squad but it just fell victim to bad timing at this rate, it seems unlikely of becoming the second-born film to pass $200 million domestic. Also suffering once again is Star Trek Beyond, which again dropped 58% this week for the number five spot of $10.2 million. At this rate, the film will likely be the only new Trek film to not pass $200 million domestic and could mark the beginning of the end for the Trek film reboot uh the one film that managed to carve out a bit of suicide squad space was bad moms which will only drop 40 percent from last week coming in at number two with 14.2 million the 20 million dollar budget comedy has been attracting a large female audience who may have wanted an escape from the more male-dominated action films that said suicide squad 
actually tested better with women than men. So it will be interesting to see if that takes any tangible markets away from bad moms. Uh, there is still some stuff in here uh, to go over. I did not read everything. And also there are films to follow and their grosses and stuff. Also film closings. Uh, including The Nice Guys, which ended its worldwide run with $57 million on a $50 million budget, and that makes me sad. But yeah, these are some really good points, nice intriguing notes here from MI-16Evil. Uh, what do you think there, Tim? Questions, comments, concerns on that? I found this to be very informative. You know, the whole Nine Lives budget was just to pay off Kevin Spacey. Well, uh, I was going to say, you had Kevin Spacey, and then you also have... What's her name's uh, in it? Um, oh. Ben Affleck's uh, ex-wife or Jennifer Garner. Jennifer Garner. Yeah. yeah. Jennifer Garner. No, but I was thinking of. Um, why can I not think of his name? Kevin Spacey can even do the stupid impersonation of him. Ah oh, man, Christopher Walken. Good lord, Christopher Walken's in it. So you know, Christopher Walken is basically reprising his click role. That's what I thought. Yeah, I, I really felt like he was simply doing. Um, the death thing, except he's named Felix and not Mort in this one. So, <sighs> yeah, that's my news. Alrighty, I'm gonna close out with two other a little quick pieces, and then some crazy interesting Suicide Squad news because there's a lot of it. First up, via Deadline.com, two guys that used to work together at the Daily Variety, named Peter Bart and Mike Fleming Jr. Apparently, they get together. Uh, and discuss the movie industry in a weekly column. During this discussion, or this particular discussion, was about movie studios' uncertainty with certain movies that they are making. Um, and a lot of the, I guess this conversation kind of stems from the re, all the reshoots that are happening. You know, everybody wants a big budget film uh, that does well. Everybody wants that Deadpool movie. Everybody wants that Guardians of the Galaxy. Everybody wants that Marvel superhero movie. But like what we saw with Fantastic Four, they went back after poor test screenings, reshot a huge chunk of the movie, and the movie still turned out like crap. Suicide Squad, which I'll be talking about soon, they reshot a whole bunch of the movie because they thought that, oh, you know, the audience is wanting to see more fun other than what David Ayer shot. It had more of a darker tone to it. The studio wanted the movie to have more of a fun, enjoyable tone, very much like the trailer. And then what did you end up getting? A a muddled, over-edited piece of crap. Uh, and an enjoyable piece of crap, for that matter. But uh, Mike Fleming Jr. here. Uh, mentions a little something about the Star Wars Rogue One reshoots, where he says that, quote, even the big tent poles are fraught with uncertainty. They keep news about Star Wars locked up like Fort Knox, but I heard on those Rogue One reshoots, it was Tony Gilroy behind the camera and not Gareth Edwards. Gareth, Gareth Edwards is, he just finished doing Godzilla, the first Godzilla a couple years ago, so this is his second uh, bigger budget film. And they wanted him to bring a simpler, I don't want to necessarily, necessarily say a simpler tone or feeling to the film, but he, they wanted somebody with a, with a drastically different scope than Lucas and J.J. Abrams. Tony Gilroy was brought on. Nobody really knew that he directed the reshoots, but 
he was supposed to come on to work on the script and work as an editor because he's a writer and an editor. We were talking about him last week. He did the Bourne movies. He did the first four. He wrote the first four Bourne scripts and he directed the fourth Bourne movie. So he's a very talented guy. And so if this is true, it makes me feel a little bit uncertain with the path that Rogue One is taking. Force Awakens had reshoots and that movie turned out fine, but it was still a little bit choppy. If you look at Force Awakens with a critical eye, you can see its faults. And I think a lot of it was because they had a broad idea where they wanted to take the story, but it kept changing as they were shooting it, that they had to kind of piece it all together in some way at the end. And it works for the most part, but it doesn't guarantee you, doesn't matter what studio it is, that it will work every single time. It makes me feel a little bit nervous for the movie. Uh, Matt, what do you think? Do you think this is no big deal? Or do you too think that studios need to stop meddling with a person's vision when it comes to a movie? Because you hire these guys, you hire these specific genre directors to make a film, to give it a different flair, give a different taste, but then they're worried that the mass audience will not dig it as much than the studio meddles with it. Well, I think... um... I guess I don't know if they're doing it if they're doing it after testing I suppose I'm a little bit more okay with it because it um it it, it at least makes a little bit of sense because they're now worried that people aren't going to like the movie um if they're doing it in rough cuts or off of dailies and based off things that are coming from the editing room before they do testing I have a huge problem with that because uh, it does seem to be like buyer's remorse. But unfortunately, um, you tend to make things worse instead of better m- more often than not, more often than not when you do that. So I can kind of see the idea if it's after testing. Um, but I mean, this movie's coming out in four months, come hell or high water. So I guess we'll know soon enough. And it is important to note that both Fantastic Four and Suicide Squad they were shown to test audiences, and I think that's what kind of true. But in but but even in Fantastic Four's case, even you know the even the reshoots didn't help. Um, I don't know. I just think that um, and and again, you know, sometimes you go into a project, everything looks good, and it's just like it's just like when somebody interviews really well, but then they do a shit job. I mean, it could be something along those lines, too. I don't really know. Um, But I think, I I really, truly believe at this point, especially in the DC world, that they need to just start adhering to the old adage of in for a penny, in for a pound. Okay? Just let them do it. You're only going to make it worse. You're only going to increase your costs by doing reshoots and doing all this kind of stuff. So just let it ride. All right, well, since we were already talking about Suicide Squad indirectly, I'm just going to jump into my last piece of news, the Suicide Squad news. Uh, And for those of you who follow critic ratings of movies, uh, in this particular case, Suicide Squad, you will know that Suicide Squad has been getting the best reviews from people. A number of fans enjoyed the movie, but critics are... (laughs) They hate it. In fact... A couple famous directors, well-known directors, are, are taking a particular issue with the movie. Mike Berbiglia said that he posted to Twitter that, quote, Suicide Squad has machine gun killings and bombings and got a PG-13 rating. 
Don't Think movie, which is a movie that uh, either it did come out in small markets or it's just about to come out, gets an R because adults smoke pot. Confusing? And then Judd Apatow tweeted that same day, August 3rd, quote, studios own the ratings board. Violence sells, so they make pot and sex the scary thing. So they seem caring. End all quotes there. Two things that I just found very interesting, because Suicide Squad does definitely have quite a lot of violence, a lot of darker violence. You do see people getting blasted uh, away by machine guns. People are dying, so I can understand where they're coming from, but the, the criticisms don't stop there. Fans are so ticked off with Rotten Tomatoes that they started a petition on Change.org. And the petition, I guess, is called Don't Listen to Film Criticism. This is petitioning the audiences. Uh, This was put up by Abdullah in Alexandria, Egypt, where uh, they say that there's a disconnect between critics and audiences. You may enjoy a movie regardless what the critics say about it. We must get the people to know that the criticism, not the measure of the quality of movies, it's just the opinions of the critics. So far, out of 25,000 petitions or supporters needed, they actually have 22,197 supporters. And yet, the Suicide Squad news gets worse. It gets worse. According to thehollywoodreporter.com from August 3rd, Article here written by Kim Masters, Suicide Squad's secret drama, rushed production, competing cuts, high anxiety. The upheaval like that behind Warner Brothers' DC team-up is becoming a staple of studio franchise filmmaking. Better late than never. That was one Warner Brothers executive's reaction to the excitement at Suicide Squad's splashy August 1st premiere in New York. Tracking indicates the film could open to more than $140 million domestically and potentially hand the studio its first unequivocal mega-hit since American Sniper's $547.4 million in December 2014. With March's Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice grossing $873 million worldwide, but failing to impress audiences or reached the hoped-for $1 billion mark, Warner still urgently needs to jumpstart its critical DC Comics universe, raising the stakes for Suicide Squad, which cost at least $175 million to make. Yet, if the villain team-up ultimately works, and it has drawn some harsh early reviews, it continue to draw harsh reviews, it will be in spite of the kind of behind-the-scenes drama that is becoming typical for giant franchise movies. And the article goes on to talk about David Ayer, the director, in the production itself, where it says that a production schedule engineered to meet an ambitious release date, uh, director David Ayer, uh, he directed Fury, untested in making tentpole movies and studio executives brimming with anxiety who are ready to intercede forcefully as they attempt to protect a branded asset, often efforts to fix perceived problems ratchet up the cost, which drive anxiety ever higher. In extreme cases, such as Fox's troubled Fantastic Four, the intervention is so aggressive that it becomes unclear what it means to be the director. So despite grueling moments, multiple editors, and competing cuts, the production of Suicide Squad barely stands out in today's landscape. And, okay, this is a pretty lengthy article, so I'm just going to go ahead and summarize the rest of it. 
What David Ayer wanted to bring to the table, which I kind of covered a little bit earlier, he wanted to make a darker film. Because, again, these movies are about the villains. And the movie was well into production by the time Batman v Superman came out in March. And apparently a source, reading here from the article again, a source with knowledge of events says that the Warner's executives, nervous from the start, grew more anxious after they were blindsided and deeply rattled by the tepid response to Batman vs. Superman. Quote, Kevin was really pissed about damage to the brand, end quote, says one executive close to the studio. A key concern for Warner's executives was that Suicide Squad didn't deliver on the fun, edgy tone promised in the strong teaser trailer for the film. So while Ayer pursued his original version, Warner set about working on a different cut with an assist from Trailer Park, the company that had made the teaser trailer. By the time the film was done, multiple editors had been brought into the process, though only John Gilroy is credited. A source says he left by the end of the process and that the final editor was Michael Tronick. Quote, when you have big tent poles and time pressure, you pull in resources from every which way you can, in quote, says the source. Quote, you can't do it the way it used to be with one editor and one assistant editor, in quote. In May, Ayer's more somber version and a lighter studio-favored version were tested with audiences in Northern California. Quote, if there are multiple opinions that aren't in sync, you go down multiple tracks. Two tracks, at least, in quote, says an insider. Quote, that was the case here for a period of time, always trying to get to a place where you have consensus, in quote. Those associated with the film insist that Ayer agreed to and participated in the process, once feedback on the two versions was analyzed, it became clear it was possible to get, quote, a very common ground place, end quote. The studio favored version with more characters introduced early in the film and jazzed up graphics one. Getting to that place of consensus, however, required millions of dollars worth of additional photography. Other sources describe a fraught process. One cites, quote, a lot of panic and ego instead of calmly addressing the tonal issue, end quote. Clearly, all wasn't sitting right with Ayer, who in June suddenly dropped his longtime agent at CAA and defected to WME, though the agency won him back in a day. Quote, he was under a lot, a lot of pressure, In quote, says one person with knowledge of the situation. Yada, 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 yada. And the article, of course, goes into more detail about that they basically merged two different movies together to create this film. And so... I read this article thinking that, so they made two different movies, two different movies. And then I came across another article where Ayer was sitting down with Steve Frosty Weintraub from Collider.com, and they were talking about editing the film. And he actually says that, quote, we have a chunk. There's definitely over 10 minutes of material that'll be on the Blu-ray, apparently. But this cut of a movie the current one in the theater, is my cut. There's no sort of parallel universe version of the movie. Their released movie is my cut. And that's one of the toughest things about writing, shooting, and directing a film, is that you end up with these orphans and you love fucking love them, and you yada yada yada. So apparently, the current version of Suicide Squad, according to David Ayer, is his cut. But is it really? Because when you watch it, it is obvious that there are two different versions of the film. I have a feeling that David Ayer is under contract to where he cannot admit that 
two movies were blended together. He has to take ownership. His name is a part of the film still. Therefore, he needs to give off the impression that the studio wasn't you know, worried about it. Because on top of this movie, coming up next, is Justice League. And so they didn't want any bad vibes or any more bad vibes going into Justice League. So this is all very interesting. I'm kind of curious to see if a month or so after they release Blue, uh, the Blu-ray version, or it could even be years, who knows, that they will come out with a director's cut or an alternate cut of Suicide Squad because that is the movie that I want to see. And that's it. It's very interesting, and I highly recommend you all to dig a little deeper in this and check out these articles. The uh, main one that I kind of read from is from thehollywoodreporter.com. Suicide Squad, Secret Drama, Rush Production, Competing Cuts, High Anxiety. Do check it out. All right. Well, that does conclude the news and brings us to our uh, newly rechristened, formerly best of the worst, but now creme de la crap. He's the best skate around. She's the hottest date in town. Together, they're love on wheels in Roller Boogie. You're the best skater on the boardwalk, true? Yeah, I don't know. I do okay. Well, I need someone to teach me how to dance on skates. I'll pay you ten bucks an hour. There's five in advance. We're gonna freshen up. Ready? Hey, this is all screwed up. I'm supposed to ask you if you want to skate. Okay, I asked. So you want to skate or something? Sure, I want to skate or something. Let's go. My mama went to Palm Springs. She came home with a new papa. Now she's in Mexico, dear thing. Doing what, pray tell? Getting rid of my new papa. Then it's back to the springs for another try. My parents don't have to tell me where they're going. Why should I tell them where I'm going, right? Where are you going? Crazy! Anybody want to come? She's off to the beach again. Her choice of friends leaves something to be desired. She picked you, didn't she? Hey, Bob, we're going to the pier later. You want to come? I got to practice. Oh, come on, man. There's this new waitress at Casa Cucaracha, man. She wants your body any time, day or night. She said she loved Olympic skaters. She did not. Me too. Hey, I got one hour workout and two hours practice. You know my routine. All right, well, give it a break, man, huh? Let's go find some women. I'll see you later. Oh, maybe oh, drag like this Hey, get off my case. My time is my own. You get it? No Olympic judge is going to vote for a turkey boardwalk skater. That waitress. Serial fox. <laughs> yeah, fox, man. <laughs> that chick's uglier than her enchiladas, man. Linda Blair, Jim Bray. Roller Boogie. It's love on wheels. Rolling your way for Christmas. So on this particular episode or segment of Creme de la Crap, 
We're going to be discussing 1979's musical film, Roller Boogie, starring uh, Linda Blair, a.k.a. Discount Carrie Fisher. Because, holy crap, does she look a lot like Carrie Fisher. Uh, <laughs> and introducing Jim Bray. Introducing and concluding Jim Bray, a former competitive artistic skater from California. All right. Um, this is a movie about two ki- crazy kids from opposite sides of the tracks and opposite sides of the world as is are you know completely different worlds as it were bobby james played by jim bray uh, a disco skater who's like real big on the venice beach scene and then and, and of course poor with a heart of gold and blah 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 and then we've got linda blair's um terry who is a Terry Barkley, and she is the daughter of a just ultra-rich lawyer, and uh, her mom's like a socialite and everything, and she's this musically gifted genius who's going to Juilliard and all that kind of stuff. She's a flautist. She's a flout. Did you know, by the way, that you can play the flute by simply blowing into it and doing nothing else? That's fantastic. I did not know that. You know, my niece, who is a flautist, she has to move her fingers, like, all over the place. But apparently, you don't have to do that, at least in 1979. Maybe they came out with more complicated flutes after that? I don't know. So, they come together, and, of course, uh, thanks to their love of disco and dance and rollerblading, or not rollerblade, roller skating, uh, they are able to overcome their differences and their odds and uh, a little bit of help from daddy uh, when a bad thing goes down at the roller skating rink, um, you know, and their summer love is complete, as it were. Now, it kind of sounds like a like a movie you might have heard of if you replace roller skate disco roller skating with catskills summer camp youth love and just dancing huh it's got like dirty dancing it's kind of like dirty dancing it kind of is um there are a lot of parallels to these two movies and uh, while there is no question that Dirty Dancing is the superior film, and I actually really, really like Dirty Dancing besides that, um, this movie is just chock full of the worst acting you have ever seen. Now, we're going to talk a little bit later on about bad writing, uh, Suicide Squad, but this time we actually have kind of decent writing. It's not, it's not, you know, it's never going to win an Academy Award. But you could clearly tell that the dialogue and the style of the writing and the way it was progressing the story, somebody at least, you know, knew what they were doing. Um, but this is some bad acting. Oh, God, the acting is so bad. So bad. So, so bad. Um, it does create some very funny moments throughout, especially in regards to the way that Jim Bray... Um, as Bobby James reacts to people in scenes, it's kind of like uh, he doesn't understand that he's being, that he's being talked to as a character. And then he just kind of shifts over and starts talking about something else instead of finding a way either through action or intonation or expression 
to shift to the next level of dialogue. Maybe he just forgot his lines and there's just didn't have enough time to go back and like, dude, you totally forgot some some transitional sentences here. But, you know, he gets told like, I love you. And he just kind of looks at her and goes, so you know how to skate. Did you learn when you were a kid? Like, what? What? This is after staring at her for like, and I mean, they film it. They hold it on film. He stares at her for like eight seconds. You know, um, I also am convinced that Jim Bray was actually from the South and desperately tried to hide his Southern accent when he was talking because his diction is really weird. Um, and <laughs> sometimes he sounds a little Southern, but then immediately tries to stop like mid sentence. So I don't know. Maybe he's foreign. May I know nothing about him. His Wikipedia page is basically a stub. Um, he, he was kind of a teen heartthrob as a result of this movie. Um, well, can, but he was he a, did... he was a professional roller skater and yes, he was. Yes. He, he was a competitive artistic skater. To me, he seemed like the cockiest roller skater ever well, in his acting. Like he was overly confident with his acting. Yeah. Um, Maybe, I, I don't know. Well, I mean, he did get to go to the Olympics. Um, anyway, so uh, at the end of the day, this is a very bad movie. And it definitely, pardon me, it definitely fits the crap side. And while there are certainly many laughs to be had, there are se- there, it's more incredulity than it is... Just, holy crap, it's so bad that it's good. Um, I will say that the first five and a half minutes of this movie, some of the, some, it's just God's gift to disco. I mean, seriously. Fuck Saturday Night Fever. No, 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 no. If you want to encapsulate the disco era, you watch the first five minutes of Roller Boogie. That's what you do. Okay. Cher literally wrote a song like Hot Wheels. Oh my God. It's fucking, I just, um, anyway, so I, while I will certainly grant that this is a bad movie, it didn't do very well at the time, um, in terms of its reviews. It did make money based on the crowd who went and saw it. So it was somewhat financially successful. Um, and it has since become a great time capsule of the disco era and is a cult favorite. So I can see why that is true. Um, it just does not cream. It's not creme de la crap. It's just a bad movie that you can laugh at. Um, and, and, and at least appreciate the time that it was made. So I vote no. Long story short. Sorry to keep you waiting. I think this is an excellent film. It, it, to me, this is, this is definitely creme de la crap. I came across this, uh, three New Year's Eves ago watching Antenna TV over at my dad's house. And this was on, and I actually watched it with commercials, drinking bottles of wine, and thoroughly enjoying myself. I am the proud owner of Roller Boogie on (laughs) Blu-ray. And how can you not like a movie where the movie begins with the assembly of a roller skate to to 70s disco hits? And it's great, like, they're putting together the, uh, the roller skate as if it was a pit crew putting together an indie car. And then right when they get the wheel assembled onto the skate, the person flicks the wheel, and that's where the title kind of rolls in. Roller Boogie. In case if you did know that you were about to sit through an hour and 40 minute movie about roller disco, you were reminded 
right then. And it was great. The first 15 minutes of the movie is absolutely priceless, kind of like what Matt was saying. You have great disco hits. You have the introduction uh, to all the characters. So right off the bat, you know exactly what you're getting yourself into. And on top of it all, for those of you who are familiar with Venice Beach, currently, you will take note that that is not how it looks like now. In fact, it looks so clean in this movie It makes it currently look more disgusting when you see it in person. God, I mean, I would would rather take the 70s hair on roller skates doing the conga line down the boardwalk and saying classic lines like, you ain't no bimbo from the boardwalk. You sure you want to do it? Great stuff like this. And the editing, I really dig the editing of this movie. I think whoever was in charge, either the editor or the director, uh, whoever had the overall vision... I think it was absolutely brilliant. The edits of this movie is great. They're, they're, they're sharp. They knew exactly when to have music kick in, you know, and then divert the movie into uh, another direction, which normally it's back into fun. You know, everybody is in high spirits and high hopes when the movie does get into the dr- the dramatic, which the dramatic in this case is, you know, of course, the boy falls in love with the girl. Something happens and the boy and the girl fall out of love. And then, then they have like this high-speed rollerblading chase through the Venice canals while somebody in a driving around in a luxury limousine is chasing them down, you know, just so that they can actually close down a club, a roller skating rink, you know. So it's so goofy and so 1979, you just can't help but enjoy it. Um, and I'm not talking about the setting and the style, but you have the characters. Keep in mind, in the 70s, yeah. For the next 10 years, for the next 15 years, you're going to see a lot of movies that were modeled after this film. Now, I don't know if this film influenced those movies, because after Saturday Night Fever, you had a lot of people that were trying to capitalize off that movement, off the Saturday Night Fever movement. When disco was big and Roller Boogie was big, everybody was trying to capitalize off what the new urban fad was at the time. You saw a lot of dance movies then, too. But nothing, at least to me, nothing was is as wonderful as Roller Boogie. I personally find it more enjoyable than Saturday Night Fever, though obviously the dancing in Saturday Night Fever and the music in Saturday Night Fever is phenomenal compared to this movie. I mean, this is just Roller Boogie, man. This is just Roller Disco, and people are so intense and so fucking cocky about it in this movie. Like, the, 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 the main guy, the Olympic skater dude guy, you know, he is so overly into himself because he is the best roller skater on the boardwalk. Like, that actually means something to him. You know, he devotes his life to roller skating on that boardwalk. In fact, he lives in an apartment that overlooks the Venice Beach boardwalk. (laughs) So, yeah, you just gotta check it out. I do recommend it. I do think it's very entertaining. Creme de la crap. And do let us know what you think. I'm I'm curious to know what uh, our favorite listener thinks of 1979's Roller Boogie. It's the ultimate summer movie, too. So, I mean, you got to watch it just because it's summer. Go for it. Right on, right on. Okay, well, then that brings us to the end of Creme de la Crap. Uh, next week's bonus segment is going to be a discussions on the following article from Deadspin.com. 
the hateful life and spiteful death of the man who was Vigo the Carpathian. Uh, and this article was written by Sean Raviv. So please feel free to go and track that down, deadspin.com, and read up on that. We will be discussing that article next week on the show. So until uh, that time comes, I think it's ready. we're ready for the movies, are we not, sir? Yes, two very similar movies that we are reviewing <laughs> this week. Yes, yes, they are. They're almost the exact. They, we, we, you know, they have to check for copyright infringement. Let me tell you. All right, here we go, folks. It's the movies. <laughs> That's right. So, as we discussed, this week's movies are Suicide Squad and The Little Prince. Um, where would you like to start, sir? Uh, maybe we should start high and go with The Little Prince? Is, is that safe totally to say? I'm down with that. We're, we're going to try a little something different here, guys. So, you're going to need to bear with us. We're, we're, we're altering our format this week. We're going to try a little something out in terms of how we're going to do our movie reviews so that we can... Try and cover broad strokes on both sides first and then get to spoilers and stuff for people who have not seen the movies that we're reviewing. Um, so, I, in a word, yes. And in a sentence, this is my favorite movie of the year so far. This, I mean, really? Wow. Like, well, yeah, yes. you know, this was the movie that was supposed to come out months ago, but it got. Pulled. Yeah, and then Paramount, yeah, and Paramount dropped it off their slate and everything. Yeah, like the week um, before it was supposed to. Get released. So Netflix ended up picking it up. And, oh, I'm so glad that they did. You have no idea. Um, all right. So, Little Prince, um, 2015. English language, 3D animated fantasy drama films directed by Mark Osborne. It is based on the 1943 novella of the same name by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. Uh, let's see here. So it stars Jeff Bridges, Rachel McAdams, Paul Rudd, Bud Court, Marion Cotillard, Benicio Del Toro, James Franco, Ricky Gervais, Paul Giamatti, Riley Osborne, Albert Brooks, and Mackenzie Foy. And what we have here is the, um, not a reimagining of the film, but in, but an incorporation I'm sorry, not a reimagining of the book, but an incorporation of the entirety of the story into a larger framework. That being a young girl whose mother is desperately trying to make, to ensure that she succeeds in life and has, and she has buy-in. She wants to succeed as well as, uh, and make her mom proud and do right by herself. But, She's also a child, and she needs to have that, and she needs to understand what life can offer her. And so introduce the aviator, an old man who lives next door. And it's within this framework that the story of the little prince is relayed, and, it's, uh, and, and, and so that's how it works. I'm going to stop there because that's pretty much – that's a very – succinct overview i think i'm going to let you know up front this is a five-star movie and seriously i've only given one other five-star movie this year it's the revenant and i can honestly say uh, that this movie is still 
like if I if gun to my head and I had to pick between the two, uh, because they are both so amazing for such different reasons, I would still lean towards Little Prince first and Revenant second. That's where I'm at on this movie. Tim, what 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 is your initial response before we go in depth? I thoroughly enjoyed the movie. Uh, it's very smart and mature, but not adult. It's what I wish Pixar would be. I mean, I, I wish they would rely more on the story and not on the quirky characters. Where this movie relies on the story, in the emotional depth of the characters, and the quirkiness that does happen, that does come out of these characters, happen in a very uh, natural, human way. And you, you do have some larger-than-life characters, but they are within the the boundaries within the realm of the story of the little prince which works and everything that happens from the little girl's point of view who's you know in her relationship with her mother to the relationship she has with the aviator next door is so it's it's amazing it's a beautiful beautiful relationship because there's no bad guy here people are just misinterpreting certain things certain aspects of this little girl well maybe it's the mom misinterpreting the aspects of this little girl's uh life and she's trying to do what she thinks is right but really it might not be the right thing I enjoyed this movie because, to me, the aviator reminded me so much of my grandfather. My grandfather was a dreamer. He was, you know, he liked to tell stories very similar to The Little Prince, where the stories had kind of an emotional foundation to it. And on top of it, you learned a little something. It was human nature. Excellent themes are prevalent in this movie, and I do think also that it's a very interesting take on the story of uh, of The Little Prince. I think it's very good, though I do have some issues with the film, but overall, by the end of the movie, I was feeling quite emotional, but I don't want to spoil anything. I do give this one 4.25 out of 5. So far, definitely one of the most fulfilling and satisfying movies, both emotionally and in the entertainment sector this year. And the animation is absolutely beautiful as well, but 4.25 out of 5. I agree. All right, so now we're going to shift a little bit. We're going to shift gears, getting into spoilers. So check the timestamp um, in the episode description. If you want to skip the spoilers, you can just jump right to the next timestamp where we start our discussion of Suicide Squad. See? See how easy that is? All right, here we go. Now, um, this movie, What? okay, the stop-motion animation, holy crap, was just amazing and i loved the seamlessly the way it seamlessly blended into the cgi i also liked i got to and and it was one of the things that was so good about this movie is its cinematography and i know it's kind of an interesting way to say because it's cgi but when you look at the world that our um our little girl is finds herself in at the beginning everything is rigid everything is strict and yet everything is clean everything is uh straight is lined and so when you find when you find just exactly how strict and rigid and everything is it's hard to deviate from that as evidenced at the very beginning when she messes up her answer because she is just so ingrained that she's going to be getting this question and yet the questions they ask her, ironically, is posted everywhere around her. and But she doesn't catch it, so she just totally misses her thing. And so 
you're given all of this clean line, straightness, everything's rigid, nothing really flexible, everything happens at the same time. And then she ends up moving into a new home to still be able to work around going into this school. And she ends up next to the aviator. And there is, and so you pull out, and it's a simple stop frame, um, scene exterior, and you see her home and the aviator's home. And I was able to teach my kids today about the differences and, well, what was different about the aviator's home? What, what do you notice about the little girl's home? You know, what's different about that? And so, and so you can see where these like little synapses start firing and everything. And it's so wonderful because this movie does this all over the place it provides juxtaposition through its cinematography and when it doesn't need to do that it's a it allows the story to take over for itself it also uses amazing just the most amazing scoring uh the music is so awesome um but what i thought was so interesting was not so much that you you have the dynamic of the little girl who's got to go through her own story and her own life to understand what it means to have been the little prince. But to watch the dynamic of a child who desperately needs more than she's getting. Not because of anything that's being done wrong. Not that anything that's being done out of cruelty or malice. Just because sometimes... We as parents, we miss the fucking point. We don't mean to, but we do. And we don't give our kids something that they need in the time that they need it. And you see this little glimpse of a girl, of a kid, and that's where the aviator comes in. But while she's getting that, and this is what makes this movie so amazing, you're also learning the lesson of the little prince, which is... No matter where you are in life, no matter what, you have to be able to learn not to let go exactly, but how to hold on properly. And they do it so well in the framework that it's just completely codified by the little prince. Um, one small little nitpick for me with this film would be James Franco. Um, I understood his vocalizations. I got the idea behind the characterization. He plays the fox in the movie. Um, and so this is at the point where uh, the prince has already left his rose behind. He has found himself on Earth after visiting the... Uh, the, uh, the... Oh... The conceited man. He's already visited the king. He's visited the businessman. And... He is, um, and so he, he learns the value of one thing from many, right? When, when he discovers that the roses on earth are like, holy crap, I thought my rose was the only rose. And the fox helps him understand that, but that is your rose. It doesn't matter that it's one of a million roses. It's still your rose. And he also, as the fox teaches him, how, you know, to, how what you see in your heart is what's, is what really matters. Now, it's a great character, but 
it's it's in the context of the greater whole his line delivery is very jarring because it's and I, and I guess maybe you could you know try and artistically argue that that's the point so you'll pay attention to it more but I really found that it was just kind of bothersome for me it wasn't enough to dock it anything uh, because it was the only nitpick that I really had with it. Um, and I don't think it was a bad casting choice. I just think it was, I, I just wasn't really happy with that vocalization, uh, graded on me a little bit. But holy shit, what a fucking fantastic movie. And much like Tim, I, I was, you know, glad that the kids were engrossed in this movie because we all watched it this afternoon. Because I'm like, I need to go and, um, figure out where all these onions are being chopped at because holy shit guys uh yeah i, I don't know <laughs> daddy's gonna I, go I to the bathroom and reflect for yeah. a couple hours <laughs> yeah i'm like i'm sorry I, if you're not if you're not bawling by the end of this movie you're not human as far as i'm concerned um but uh in all seriousness it really does that's why i say the framing device really works to um, deliver the message behind the little prince, which the the story itself codifies as the movie goes along. So, God, what a just a fantastic movie! What do you think? What, what else did you want to add there, Tim? I know you have other things that you were wanting to get into before you started. No, before you stopped it, yourself. You pretty much said it. Uh, there's really not much for me to add other than uh, I gave it a four point two five out of five because. Just a kind of a couple things like they 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 just threw some stuff in that they didn't need to throw in just to kind of tie the movie up with a you know with a nice little bow like the book that she presents the aviator at the end when did she have time to get that book together when the event happened the day before the night before and they went to go visit him the next morning I don't know they just that just kind of felt like it was they did it to. They did it because they knew they really wanted to. They really wanted to uh, send the emotion home. You know, hit it out of the park. A okay, little bit. I, I, I want. I would. I would counter with this. I'm, I kind of like this little style we're doing here. All right, I would counter that with this. When she pull. When when she falls off. Of, when when the uh, gutter drain pulls off the side of the building and she falls back into the yard. Um, to me, she was knocked out. And she dreamed the rest. I think that she woke up and made that book because she finally understood what the aviator had been trying to explain to her the whole time. Well, that little girl has a great talent in book binding. She did a great. Oh job. yeah, yeah. No, okay. I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna argue that. But, yeah. but I think it's something that is left is completely left. Um, open to you to interpret that way. Yeah. I think that you could that you could interpret it as she really did go on that adventure and she really did find the prince and Mr. Prince and help him understand where he was. But I choose to think that she just woke up and she did that and she prepared to say goodbye. Yeah, and that's why she was awake and you know brushing her teeth when her mom opens up and she's like, "Oh my gosh!" Oh. and then she's like, "We're late." So that's how I chose to see it. I thought it was brilliant because, you, again, you can see that however you want to see it. Yeah, and the, and the movie does have a lot, a lot of little things like that to help make the movie a complete package. You know, to give both emotionally and structurally, 
honestly, I wasn't going to give it four stars. I was going to probably give it 3.75 or three and a half until it got to the final act of the film. I just loved how when the dream kicked in, how the movie carried on from there. And it was it was a wonderful movie. I didn't know what to expect. It's different from what you would see in any other Disney film. You're going to watch this movie and look at Inside Out and Frozen and think, you know what? Inside Out was a good script, but by God, this movie is fucking original. You can watch it by yourself as an adult. You can watch it with your kids. It's safe. It had a respect. It had a respect for the intelligence of a child. Yeah, did you happen to notice there there are little Easter eggs um, all over the place in the um, in the movie, and one of the easy ones to spot. Yeah, the cars all had uh, license plates that said or referenced different things, uh, like the girl and her mom. Their their car uh, was um, GR eight two XD or X. To XCD or something like that. So it was great to exceed. Um, and then I can't remember what the um, what the uh, aviators was, but I but that was something too. It's like steak or something like that. I can't. Remember. And then um, you get to see like I'm pretty sure they have one that that changes by country. So it was like US. It was like USA something or other. So yeah, they have little things like that. So I mean, again, multiple viewings will be impending. All right. Well, that was Little Prince, and that leaves us with Suicide Squad. And again, this is the 2016 American superhero film. It's based on the DC Comics anti-hero team of the same name. Um, this is now the third installment in what the, in the DCEU or DC um, Extended Universe. Um, it was written and directed by David Ayer, as we've already talked about. Will Smith, Jared Leto, Margot Robbie, Joel Kinnaman, Viola Davis, J- uh, Jai, J. Courtney? I don't know. J-A-Y. J-A-Y says J to me, but J-A-I says Jai, but I don't know. Um, I've heard it both ways. Whatever. So, J slash Jai Courtney, J. Hernandez, and Adewale um, Ikinue Agabje again is in here. I didn't even recognize that. Um, Ike Berenholtz, Scott Eastwood, and Kara... Delavinge um, are rounding out the cast here. So um, the plot is basically we've got a bad we've we've got a, uh, a woman, a badass intelligence woman by the name of Amanda Waller. She is um, basically assembling a team of baddies. Uh, and her plan is to utilize them to take down uh, even greater forces or even greater baddies that are nece- that are necessary. Um, she will, and of course, if everything works out, then great. She'll knock off time off their sentence, and then they go back and do whatever. And if they fail, well, then they can just throw them under the bus and say, oh, they escaped from jail, blah, blah, blah. So... That's the idea. They then, uh, of course, are immediately sent out on a recon mission that turns out to be something requiring the world to be saved. Um, all right. In a nutshell, I felt that there... Generally, you always hear this phrase, style and substance. I really felt that this movie nailed the style. They got the style of the universe down. Um, and it was a, 
great idea, especially if you can compare and contrast this particular movie to Batman Assault on Arkham, which is an animated Warner Brothers movie. Um, uh, it's available on Netflix in Canada. Of course, you can always rent on Amazon or purchase or at your leisure. Um, it's interesting. And, and so they nailed the style, but unfortunately, the substance for me is not there. This was uh, some terrible, terrible writing on uh, Ayer's part, and thus the characterization suffered, the delivery suffered, and I will stop there. I mean, it just, it, it, yeah, there's so many problems with this movie, but the style, oh, man, did they get the style right. Um, so this, all of the points for this movie come from the style, and it's not a whole lot. 1.75 for me. I just, this movie did not deliver. Uh, what do you got there, Tim? The movie is a total mess. Like I mentioned before, <laughs> like what I monologued about for 10, 15 minutes earlier in the news, you know, about the two different versions of this movie coming together. I really don't know how much of it is David Ayer's fault. Like I said before, the movie frustrated me. It frustrated me because I saw a great, there's a great movie in there somewhere. There's a great movie because there are moments in this movie that I absolutely loved. I'll go into more detail about that in the spoilery section. But then there are absolute crap moments. I could tell that it was the trailer people. It was the trailer people's fault because the first half of this movie felt like a trailer. It looked like a trailer. Every segment, like every couple minutes, there was a brand new, older, popular song that would play to kind of narrate, to underscore the current person that they were talking about. You saw stuff from the trailer that actually, to me, stood out in the trailer that were just kind of thrown into the movie as like flashbacks or cut-to scenes to help set up one of these characters. They just kind of tore this movie apart and reassembled it and recut it to make it more fun. And I really don't think this is honestly David Ayer's final cut. of the, Well, I mean, I guess it has to be his final cut, but I don't think this is his original version or his original vision of the film. And that's the movie that I wanted to see. And again, there are hints of his original version within the muddled crapola. But the movie does look good. It has some fun. I, I did have a good time watching it. So out of five, I am actually sitting at three. Three out of five, I found enjoyment. I actually threw 15 bucks at this movie. I wouldn't necessarily recommend 15 bucks, but I didn't think I got ripped off. That's, that. I don't know, it's kind of surprising for me to say. But I'll hold off on the rest momentarily. <laughs> okay. So I mentioned that it suffered from bad writing, uh, and hence the characterization suffered. I mean, and here's the thing, is that... Okay, the movie... Uh, when I say that the movie got the style right, think I want you to think 89 Batman, okay? Think back and remember the visual style the over the top comic bookness comic bookiness of it the just the sheer scope and the way that the world was presented to you and but, and so it it was great it was great 
And they do that here. They give you the same idea of the scope of the world uh, because this movie takes place and I believe it's Mission City is where all, all the shit goes down. Uh, so, you know, we, we've had Gotham, we've had Metropolis now. So you were Mid- seeing, Midway City. Midway City. Thank yeah. you. Midway City. So they've got that idea. You've got that aesthetic in there. And then you're presented with people like Discount Tom Hardy, right? Um, or Captain fucking Boomerang, whatever the fuck he is, um, played by J slash Jai Courtney. That was the role that Tom Hardy was going to play, but he had to do reshoots on The Revenant. Well, did he, he dodge a bullet? He was going to be Boomerang. Yeah, he, boy, I'll tell you what, he dodged a fucking bullet there. Or Boomerang. Indeed. And the worst part is, is that the outfit, the literal outfit he's in, kind of looks like Bane's outfit. So. Um, anyway, I get, okay, so you've got that but then you got these characters and again the characters also very much um have good throwbacks to their comic book counterparts in in style in presentation of the style visual style and everything but the writing oh the writing is so piss poor that you get characterizations that don't make sense and i'm going to give you a really big one because i've heard that people are like oh but the movie didn't take itself too seriously which was which is which is awesome okay you know what i'm glad that they that you think it doesn't take itself too seriously but i would like to point you to katana crying to her fucking sword like out of straight out of fucking sledgehammer. Thank you for that, by the way, Kitty. Oh my god, that was an amazing thing. Uh, and you know, and you're like, how do you take that seriously if the rest of the movie isn't being taken seriously? And then someone literally fucking forgot to tell Will Smith that this movie's not taking itself seriously because he was taking it fucking as serious as goddamn heart attack. And while I get that this particular movie was about Harley Quinn and Deadshot, and that's okay. It's not... You need to be able to keep it to those people. That's what made 89 Batman so good, because even where there was some cheesy writing, or even where certain story elements aren't as powerful as they could be, the overarching story and the writing overall gave us good characterizations and they only had three people to focus on you had batman slash bruce wayne you had vicky vale and you had uh joker slash jack napier in this particular in that particular iteration you don't have 15 fucking people you're trying to get everything worked out behind all right then on top of which so it's like you have this moment and we were talking about this uh, in in the pre-show where you have slipknot who is portrayed in the Native American style and is dead, like, you know, two minutes after on screen. Which, it was important, especially if you're contrasting this with um, Assault on Arkham, because these two movies parallel themselves very, very well, at least in terms of the story, except Assault on Arkham's better. Um, And we need someone to basically push the envelope, to see that uh, Waller is not kidding, right? Um, and her counterpart in Bragg, basically, um, are not kidding. You will die if you don't toe the line. So that's great. But instead of leaving it at that, that, why not let the experiences of the movie, the darker tone of the movie that Tim alluded to that could have been there, that I agree probably would have just been a better idea. Um, 
let that stand. Let the let the experiences that they have bring them together and solidify a team and then focus on one or two of them at a time so that you can get a backstory if needed. I mean, all you had to do instead of trying to do this half-assed fucking bullshit on Katana is let her do her fucking really weird thing that just feels totally out of place. Um, and it's, and it's like, you, so you cut 17 minutes of the Joker, but you left Katana in like this? What, what? All right. So you have all that. And then on top of that, you've got, um, you've got all these other characters and they're trying to fit in why they're here and what they did. And leave it alone. Leave it alone. Leave it just as simple as Slipknot, right? They're there because they need to be there. And then put in a line like, hey, you know, well, I don't understand why you have to be this way. And then make a nice little line like this. This is, here you go, David Ayer. If you get another shot at this, or if you get another crack, you can just use this line. You know, if we do this again, I'll tell you about it. See? Because now it's like, oh, law. see, I get it. Because there's a sequel. And then in the sequel, we can focus on them. You know, and then now we've already established why Deadshot and Harley Quinn are important. And then we can be, ooh, oh, speculation and, you know, rumor mill and, ooh, what's the story going to be and where are they going to pull it for the next movie so that you can get a better idea of why the next couple of people are there and so on and so forth. Meanwhile, you're letting the experiences of the movie and the story that are taking place in front of you be the reason that they're there. Um, so. Okay, and so let's talk about um, what uh, Johnny White Trash... Oh, and hello, Johnny. Thanks for interrupting the show earlier. Um, Johnny White Trash and I have been have basically referred to as the Millennial Joker. This is the Joker for the Millennials. Um, I, I'm not saying that Jared Leto shouldn't have been cast. I, I liked the look of him. Again, the style. Oh, they got the style just right. But there wasn't enough of him... To use, it's kind of like they tried to make him a second tier character, um, not in terms of because he was, he's a bad character or Jared Leto can't actor, but because he wasn't as important to this story. And so I can buy that to a certain extent, but you've got to give him something to do. And he doesn't deliver enough dialogue. It's, it's like, hey, Jared, what can you do? I can do that cackle. Oh, well, then you're hired. Because that's all he did that was even remotely Jokerish. Everything else was just kind of like either desperately trying to tie to Harley Quinn or and her backstory, which even then she's the focus, not him, and so he doesn't get the dialogue that he needs, so you don't really get a feel for that characterization. Or they used him as a fucking plot device, which again, going back to the cutting room floor thing might have made sense in a different way because what the fuck um so i'm not going to make a final judgment on jared leto as a joke i just really wasn't impressed um it's not that i don't think he can do a good job i just don't think there was enough and what little he did did not scream joker and i get it this is a different movie it's a different universe so fine whatever but i wasn't jazzed um and, and the whole and the whole movie's like this. The, the every single thing that breaks down is like this. And then we get to Enchantress. Ah, uh, Enchantress. Let's talk about who Enchantress was. Let's see here. We're gonna turn to Ah, yes, Cara Delevingne. 
I apologize. I, uh, or Delvigne, depending on how you look at that. So I apologize if I, for butchering the name there. She plays Dr. June Moore, Dr. June Moon <laughs> slash Enchantress. Now, I don't know if there was someone else in the running for this role, but they should have picked that other person. This chick just literally brought nothing to the table. And I get, again, I get the idea behind the characterization because the style is there, but the writing is so horrible and the way that they butchered the story, the overarching story in relation to her further solidifies how bad the writing was. But it's like they sent her to... It's like, it's literally like they pulled her from the fucking Matrix rave and then stuck her in this movie and said, do your thing, sister. Because have you ever seen somebody, she literally just kind of thrashes about and that's her shtick. She's all powerful because she went to So You Think You Can Dance Academy for fucking bad villains. Um, It just... There's nothing redeeming about her. And then you've got the stupid her brother aspect. And it's like, come on, could we have a little bit more gimmicky 3D in there, please? A little bit of gimmicky 3D? Uh, and I watched it in 2D and could tell it was gimmicky 3D. I just... There is... I, I agree with Tim. I think especially after hearing about what was cut and the way these things were shaped and uh, as compared to trailers and stuff, there's something else that could have been here. Um... But what we got wasn't it. And if they do like an ultimate edition uh, akin to Batman v Superman, I'm I'm willing to watch that. But I'm not going to watch this hot mess. It just, the style was fantastic. Um, but the substance is not there. And it comes, stems all from the writing, which goes into all of the characterizations, which is what the director does on set. He gets, he elicits those performances. And I don't know. He, David Ayer didn't do it for me. And don't get me wrong. You got to remember, I absolutely loved um, uh, End of Watch. Okay. I was all about it. So anyway, which he also wrote and directed and produced. So I know he can write. I know he can do it. Um, He just didn't do it this time. Then that's where, and that's where all of my, that's where all of my 1.75 comes from. Have I run this into the ground yet for you, Tim? I'm sorry. No, you're good. The, the only thing I'll say about Leto's Joker is in defense of him, in an interview on IGN, he was asked if he was upset about the scenes, his scenes that got cut out, and his response was, quote, were there any that didn't get cut? I'm asking you, were there any that didn't get cut? There were so many scenes that got cut from the movie, I couldn't even start. I think that the Joker, we did a lot of experimentation on the set. We explored a lot. There's so much that we shot that's not in the film. If I die anytime soon, it's probably likely that it'll surface somewhere. That's the good news about the death of an actor, is all that stuff seems to come out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> End quote. Uh, and I, I I feel for him though I didn't I don't care for his smiley face tattoo on his arm and his hand I I mean I liked what he was doing I liked the idea I just wanted to see more um, but getting more into this you know what I really thought about the movie is that full 
scenes, entire scenes were chopped up and thrown in. Viola Davis's character, I love her character, uh, especially in Assault on Arkham. She assembles a team. She wants to assemble a team that will take down a possible bad Superman if there were other going if there was going to be another Superman, maybe he'll be bad. So they want to put together together a team that'll take somebody like that out. But these characters there's no way in hell they can compete with a bad Superman. I mean, other than maybe El Diablo, who can create fire, infernos, I guess. What can Harley Quinn do? What can Boomerang do? What can Deadshot do? He cannot. None of these people can take out an evil Superman. So I thought that was kind of an interesting choice right there to pick these specific characters. The villain's intentions was never made clear. What was that death beam? Where did it come from? Did they just want to take over the earth, take over the world? And I don't know. I just never got the sense that the feeling that the world was in danger. And like I said before, the movie was three different films put into one. Deadshot and Harley Quinn were edited to be the main focal point of the movie. I kind of got the feeling that June Moon and Rick Flagg were the original focal point because their depth and their backstory really comes out there at the end. It just kind of felt like it was super rushed and thrown in for the sentimental effect for Rick Flagg's character, trying to get the audience to really root and pull for him. And I guess it... Yeah, you know, actually, let's face it, it doesn't work. We really don't care about them. But we do, in a way, care about Will Smith and Harley Quinn. The movie was meant to be dark, but they made it light and quippy, like Guardians of the Galaxy and Deadpool. I also don't understand why Harley Quinn, the maniacal maniac, had a cell phone and she was able to text the Joker. <laughs> they gave her a cell phone. Doesn't make any goddamn sense. Another thing that bugged me was the Batman cameo. That really didn't add anything to the movie. Apparently there is more Batman in the original cut of the film. Maybe it would have made more sense. I don't know. Like I've mentioned before, there are a lot of moments from the trailers, a lot of great moments from the trailers that really stood out, but they didn't happen in the movie. The Joker really, he literally had no reason to be in this movie other than to set up his relationship with Harley Quinn. Uh, Harley Quinn. And, you know, believe it or not, there are actually many moments. There are many nice moments and many bad moments. You know, I, I love the moments with Deadshot. You know, I, I like Deadshot's backstory. I believed Will Smith's portrayal of the character. But the actress who plays his daughter, who played his daughter, is not good. She is not a good child actress. And so it just kind of taints that relationship. I don't know if that would have been fixed or if that would have even been better in the original cut of the movie. I don't know. I liked Rick Flagg's inspiration for his character, but then he got too whiny and repetitive as the movie was hitting its final act. I like the many scenes between Joker and Harley Quinn. They had some great moments together, but they were all all over the place. Like the chemical scene, I really like that chemical bath scene. It was a nice like character building touch when Joker tells her, you know, if you if you love me, if you want to be with me, then jump into that vat of chemical. But what was the point of that chemical? It wasn't like a super chemical that made her crazy. What made her crazy was 
the Joker giving her shock treatment, you know, and frying her brain to make her bow to his beck and call pretty much and be obsessed with him. Did the chemical just dye her hair and dye her skin? I, I just really don't understand. I know when they went back and recut the movie, they also added more color. And you can really see that CGI color and that chemical. And it just so happens those are the colors that make up Harley Quinn's hair and her makeup. So it just really didn't make sense. I really didn't understand the point other than it was a nice moment. It made for a nice snapshot, but it really didn't have any depth. That's why I guess I what I liked about the movie was that there were hints. There were hints of greatness, but I just cannot tell what was ruined by David Ayer from the very beginning, or if it was the multiple cuts of this film mushed together to create this hot mess. And that is why I only gave Suicide Squad 3 out of 5. Right on. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of the movies. And we'll tell you about our movies for next week. We have two more movies we're going to watch next week. We have Florence Foster Jenkins and Pete's Dragon. Yes. So excited for that one. I cannot wait. So, without further ado, and until next time, I think it's I think we're ready for the spiel. Are we not, sir? Unless you want to talk about Suicide Squad for another two hours. Good Lord, no. I, you know, no, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> Spiel on! Here we go, folks. Yes! The music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both! Slash Cries of Solace. As for us, us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can even follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can also climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. And so until next week, this is Matt saying thanks to Jai slash Jay Courtney. I get to say this. I was a bit of a show-off in school and loved playing dress-up, and my passion for it just grew as I got older. Take care, cinephiles. We'll talk at you again next week.
Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>